Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, the best gift. Romans chapter 6, we ended up last time, we'll pick up right at verse 14 and go all the way through chapter 7, hitting the highlights of this section entitled, The Best Gift. We're not a month removed from Christmas and some of you received most memorable gifts, while others you received forgettable failures. Now, now think back. What is your most exciting Christmas gift ever? What is your most exciting Christmas gift of all time? Well, that one special Christmas morning became a lifetime memory because of this gift. Well, for me... I have to go back to being a young boy in the early 1970s to a toy called the Incredible Edibles. You probably are not remembering that one, the Incredible Edibles. It seems silly now, but it was a toy that would let you mold and make your own gummy candy. In fact, the little oven that cooked the edible creatures was cartoon-like character himself with big blue eyes and a red nose for the door of the oven. You take your gobbledygook, a liquid gel, squeeze it into the mold, cook the concoction, and the super-duper fun-faced cooker, count the minutes away, and voila, there you have it. You could eat your wildly creative, gruesomely created creatures like luscious lizards or beetle brittle or even a tasty turtle. I was busy that Christmas cooking up snake-shaped snacks and a dozen bite-sized bugs and insects. Well, you could cook with licorice, cherry, mint, or butterscotch flavors. You moms thought you had nothing to be thankful for in 2020. Be thankful you didn't have a son with an incredible edibles, a super-duper cooker of gobbledygook candy liquids. I morphed into a mad scientist cooking up creatures non-stops. Moms pray Mattel doesn't ever make that mess again. Well, how about your worst gift ever? Think back. One gentleman reports his mother-in-law bought him a tin of cookies, ate all the cookies, and gave him an empty, except for a few crumbs, cookie tin. That was another daughter-in-law said, now you ladies will understand this, my mother-in-law for years bought her other daughter-in-law very expensive perfume and makeup, and then I would, after she opened the really nice expensive gift, always got the free gift that came with the other daughter-in-law's expensive gift. You know, that token trinket gift, that's the tag-along gift. I opened that every year. Well, there's even worse gifts. One writer reveals that while he was in high school, he opened up a Christmas present to discover a book from Santa Claus entitled, Coping with Being Adopted. He said, it was news to me until I opened that Christmas gift. Now, that's an eye-opening Christmas gift. I'm not sure Christmas gifts are the best way to break the big news to a kid in high school. Oh, it gets worse. Another gift recipient recalls, my cousin died in a drunk driving accident a few months before. So my mother got me a breathalyzer keychain. It wouldn't have been so bad, but the card came, said it was from my deceased cousin. Sensitive? I don't, I don't think so. I think she missed it on that one. You never know when you open up those gorgeous gifts and they're going to lead to a hap, hap, happy Christmas or a long-remembered letdown. 
in our previous sermon from this series in Romans. We learned that we both die with Christ and we rise with Christ. That when he died for our sin, we died to sin. That we're not to continue to sin, that God might be able to give more grace. Look back at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 from last week's sermon. Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, nor that our body of sin might be done away with, so we are no longer to be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But we are, he reminds us, verse 11, alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the remainder of chapter 6 that we look at today, and the entirety of chapter 7, Paul continues to contrast two ways of life, living in sin or living in Christ. Living in sin or living in Christ. The central verse of this section for me is chapter 6, verse 23. Look at it. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift, there it is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. As we look at verse 14 of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 7, I want us to look at the contrast, the dualism throughout this section. First of all, the, the contrast between wages or gift. Wages or gift, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ultimately, our destination is determined by the path that we pick. We arrive at eternal death or life based upon if we choose our earned wages or God's free, gracious gift. When Paul says the wages of sin is death, he's using a military image. The word for wages is Luke, used in Luke chapter 3 or 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for that which is paid to a soldier. It's the soldier coming and getting his earned due, what he deserves. Paul says, like a soldier receiving his wages for his work, that death is a destiny if we decide to serve sin rather than God. This idea of sin and death being partners goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 32 where he tells us that those who practice sin are worthy of death. In chapter 5 and verse 12, he tells us that just as through one man that sin entered the world and through sin death, so death spread to all men because all sinned with Adam. In chapter 5 verse 12 he tells us similar things. In verse 17, death reigned through Adam, but the gift, verse 17, the gift of righteousness through the one Jesus Christ. Sin or the gift? Or in verse 21 of chapter 5, sin reigned in death, even, though, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Throughout Romans, there's two destinations Death or life? Determined by whether you claim your earned wages or you claim God's gift of grace. Do you want the wages of sin or do you want the gift of grace? Do you want death or do you want eternal life? Your best ever Christmas gift might be a cardigan sweater. 
But your best Christ gift is grace, eternal life. So wages or gift. There's another dualism here, law versus grace. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Law versus grace. For sin should not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Modern psychological experts contend that one's self-concept influences our behavioral choices that are congruent with our perception of our identity. In plain words, we behave like who we think we are. What we believe is true of ourselves in the past, what we believe is true of ourselves in the present, what we believe is true of ourselves or will be true of ourselves in the future shapes our moral choices today. In Romans, Paul is giving us a new identity as the holy people of God. In fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, we're called saints. We're called to be the holy ones. Paul doesn't want us to be trapped in sin by the letter of the law, but rather he wants us to live in the sphere of grace. Law or grace? There is a pastor of a mainline denomination who was putting the students through confirmation class where they come to be official members of the church. And he asked, what must we do before we can expect forgiveness from sin? And one kid raised his hand and says, we got to sin first. That's kind of the way they were thinking in this this community here in Romans. May it never be, Paul says. You see, the pastor was looking for the word Repentance. We must repent before we can be forgiven. Sin shall not be master over you, verse 14. For in Christ you're not under law, but rather you are under grace. Living under grace doesn't mean we sin more. It means we sin less because we act like who we are. God's children who receive the gift of grace, law or grace. Now our conduct is not based so much on the rules of the law, but now our conduct is based upon our relationship with God in Christ. You see the difference? It's not the rules that determine our behavior, but rather it is a relationship with God through Christ that determines our behavior. And under this relationship of grace, we're not to sin more, but rather we're to sin less than we sinned when we were under the law. Well, there's another dichotomy here. Sin versus righteousness. Sin versus righteousness. U.S. President Calvin Coolidge was known for the brevity of his answers and responses. One day after attending church, Coolidge found himself in the presence of a newspaper reporter. The reporter wanted to know everything about the president's trip to church that morning. What was the sermon about, the reporter asked. Sin, the president replied. And what did the pastor say about sin, the reporter persisted. He was against it, the president replied. Paul makes it clear. We are going to have a master. If you hear nothing else this morning, you hear this. We are going to have a master other than ourselves. We are either enslaved to sin or we are ruled by righteousness. We're either enslaved to sin or ruled by righteousness. Look at verse 16. Do you not know 
that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Verse 18. Now, having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You're going to have a master, one or the other. When I share Jesus with children, one of the things I ask in preparation for their baptism is, what is sin? Tell me what sin is. The word sin has literally escaped our modern vocabulary. Even over a half century ago, Pope Pius XII stated that the sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin itself. In fact, 30 years later, psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? If those gentlemen thought the idea of sin and sinners was slipping away in the 1900s, they'll be absolutely shocked to discover there are now no sinners in the 21st century. They do not exist. We have children who make bad choices. We have adults who are sick with the disease. But the real sinners, the real rebels against God, they are all gone, I'm happy to say. You see, the problem with ignoring sin, it means we're ignoring God against whom we sin. And we're denying the one door that might be open to bring us into his holy presence. That is the admitting that we're sinners and we need to repent. I was asking one little girl in particular what sin was, best answer I've ever received. Amanda said, when I said, Amanda, what is sin? When you do what you want to do, that's sin. When you do whatever you want to do. She understood, didn't she? When Adam and Eve did whatever they wanted to do, rather than obey the commandment of God, they brought the fall to all creation. And that's what Paul is telling us. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, the second Adam, we're all made alive. In arrogance, we go our way instead of God's way, claiming that we're free from his restrictions, we're free from his law, that we're freed from God. The greatest irony of all human behavior is this, that once we declare ourselves free from God, we become enslaved to sin. Yes, Paul says, you're going to be somebody's slave, either a slave to sin or a slave to to righteousness. Have you ever seen an enslaved sinner who was truly free? One who walks his own way instead of God's way. Are they frolicking in freedom? The irony is, one of those ironies of human behavior, that obedience to God based on our relationship with him through Christ Jesus is the only way we find freedom. Is a drug addict free? One whose only daily desire is driven by the need to be chemically charged by another dose of drugs, no matter who he hurts in the process of getting his fix. Is a drug addict? No, he's enslaved to sin. He is not king of his own kingdom. And it really doesn't matter what sin you choose, does it? The drug addict, the alcoholic, the porn addict, the one who's 
gluttony is God. It really doesn't matter. All those desires enslave us. Those who wrestle with greed, the one who buys more than he can afford, who gives nothing to others but serves himself, paying interest to his master called the mortgages, the credit cards, debt for him has become his Lord, the collection letters, the calls from the creditors, the repossessions are all rewards of the freedom of greed. Free to, free to desire more and never be satisfied. You see, Paul told us 2,000 years ago, we have a choice. You will either be a slave to sin or you will be a slave to righteousness. But you will have a master over yourself. Frederick Buechner says in his book entitled A Room Called Remember, what scared me in the daylights out of me was to see suddenly how drawn we are, we all are, I think, to the very things that appall us. See how beneath our civilizedness or our religiousness or our humanness, there is that in all of us which remains uncivilized and religionless and subhuman, which hungers, hungers for precisely the fare of 42nd Street which is basically a license to be subhuman, to use and exploit and devour each other like savages, to devour and destroy our own sweet selves. And if you and I are tempted to think we won't hunger for such things, we only have to remember some of the dreams we dream and some of the secrets we keep and the battle against darkness, we all fight. Beekner says, I was scared stiff that I would somehow get lost in that awful place and never find my way out. I was scared that everybody I saw coming toward me on the crowded sidewalk, the old and the young, the well-dressed and the ragged, the innocent and the corrupt, was in danger of getting lost. I was scared that the world itself was as lost as it was made. And of course, in a thousand ways, it is. Two choices. You're going to have a master. Either sin will be your master or you'll be a slave to righteousness. And they have two totally different results. Those who become sin slaves soon discover it's a harsh taskmaster that clasps irons and fastens a slave collar around their neck and tattoos his ownership on their forehead and cracks a deadly whip to keep them bowing and scraping before their master. Sin seems to promise freedom, but it robs persons of it and dehumanizes them and hurls their lives skidding and careening toward the incapable and inescapable destruction. Being slave to sin is the bad news. But look at verse 16, the good news. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves to the one you obey, either sin resulting in death, but look at the good part, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Or look at verse 18. Having been freed from sin, he died for our sin. You are now a slave of righteousness. Sin righteousness. Paul is celebrating in, in chapter 6 that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are a new person in Christ. And freedom from sin means we're slaves to righteousness. And our righteous master leads us to holiness. Look at verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and then the outcome, eternal life, holiness. God's holiness means God sets us aside to be his people. 
When holiness is used to refer, reference to God, it's His transcendence, His uniqueness, His glory in regard to us. It means being set apart for that special relationship in the Christ who died and rose again and to display His character in every arena of our lives. There's a fourth contrast here. Fruit for death or fruit for God? Look at 7-5. Fruit for death or fruit for God? For while you in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused, now look at this, the sinful passions were actually aroused by the law, not put out by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Fruit for death or fruit for God. What he's saying here in this part of chapter 7 and elsewhere is that law didn't solve the sin problem. When we had the list of thou shalt nots, when our Behavior was based upon rules that didn't work, and now our behavior is based upon a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. The law was not able to save us from sin, but rather the law led us to sin. It locked us in sin's jailhouse that we might be released by the Christ. Reminds me of the zookeeper who said he had a problem with kids throwing coins in the alligator pond. And so he decided he'd just put a sign up that said, please don't throw coins in the alligator pond. And that would stop it. What he discovered is when he put up the sign, do not throw coins in the alligator pond, there was twice as many coins in the alligator pond. The commandments don't stop sin. They lead us to sin. In fact, he says the law aroused sin in me. Does that mean the law is bad? Of course not. The law is God's law. It's that we are bad, and the law brings out the full fruition of our sin, which leads to death. But look at verse 4 right above it. It's not just the fruit of death. Look at fruit for God. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so you might be joined together to him who's raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Fruit for God, not fruit of death. In Galatians, Paul presses out what it means to have the fruit of God's Spirit. What we produce through relationship and not through rules is love, joy, Peace, kindness, goodness, self-control. Well, there's a final dualism here. The old letter of the new spirit. The old letter of the new spirit. Look at verse 6. For now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so we might serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's your choices again. The newness of the Spirit or the oldness of the letter of the law. Oldness of the letter. Why did you use that to describe the law? The law was only visible when someone chiseled it in stone or was etched in those tablets or inscribed by ink on scrolls. And the letters of the law had no power to transform our hearts. They were just rules. But Paul contrasts the letter of the law with the newness of the Spirit, the Spirit which indwells in us through Christ Jesus our Lord and transforms us to be Christ-like based upon that relationship and conforms us, chapter 8, verse 9, into the image of God's Son. Yes, the law is spiritual, chapter 7, verse 12, but it's not the Spirit of God. 
The law still functions in the domain of the flesh and it arouses a sinful hunger lurking within us instead of bringing us to obedience. The Spirit, however, operates within us internally to produce a spiritual inner transformation that makes possible that newness of life and our baptism, the new creation, the new orientation toward God so that we bear fruit for God with moral behavior. So there you have your contrast. Do you want the wages of sin? Or do you want the gift of grace? The wages of sin for all of us in Adam is death. But the grace gift is eternal life. I don't know what the best Christmas gift is that you've ever received. I bet you've got a nice list. Maybe it was incredible edibles, or maybe it was a brand new shiny bike, or maybe it was a new sled that made you long for some January snow. But the best gift that God has ever given you, the best Christ gift, is His Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have forever life. The gift. The wages are death. But the gift is eternal life. You've got to pick your own path. The law won't help you. It'll just enslave you. The law will lock you up under sin. So the question for you today is, you've heard the, dual, the dualism, which path will you pick? Will you choose wages or a gift? Will you choose to try to live your life under the law or live in the grace of God? Will you choose sin with the old Adam or righteousness with the second Adam, Christ? Will you produce the fruit of death or will you produce fruit for God? Are you going to live under the old letter etched in stone? Or are you going to live in the living, transforming sphere of the Spirit of God that dwells within you? Wages are a gift. We got some really good news next week. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. I know today was heavy, but the good news next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. Because he died for us and with us, because we live in the newness of the Spirit and we're no longer enslaved to sin, because we're slaves of righteousness, there is now in Christ no condemnation for those who live in the sphere of of Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, we discover there are still sinners, and we are they. Oh, we needed Jesus to die with our sin on his back, to die in the old sphere, born of a flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, and to be raised in the sphere of the Spirit, of life, eternity, and grace. Father, we die with him on Calvary that we might rise with him. 
and that he received our condemnation. Therefore, now, now, there's no condemnation for those who say the words, Jesus is Lord. And in his name we pray. Amen.